Welcome to Michigan Surgery Sessions, where we discuss the latest in clinical care, education, and surgery culture with faculty, residents, and medical students. Welcome, everyone. We are back with the Michigan Women's Surgical Collaborative at the Michigan Medicine Department of Surgery in Ann Arbor. I am Dr. Jennifer Walji, and I'm joined today by Dr. Don Coleman, and we are focusing on the role of healthcare systems to foster and advance workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our guest today is Dr. Zara Cooper. Dr. Cooper is an acute care surgeon, intensivist, and trauma surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also a health services researcher with deep expertise in the intersection of hospice and palliative medicine and surgical care, and is the director of and founder of the Center for Geriatric Surgery at Brigham and Women's. She also serves as the Kessler Director for the Center for Surgery and Public Health, and she also serves as the Chair of the Executive Advisory Council for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Brigham Health, which leads system-wide initiatives to improve equitable care for patients and employees. We are really honored to have her join us today. I'll start with the first question. Fostering workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion has been recognized as a top priority for many organizations across the United States. Why is it particularly important in healthcare systems? First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. I think it's great that you all are doing this podcast. And as usual, the University of Michigan Department of Surgery is leading the way in a lot of this work. Um, and a lot of the things that I've um, brought into this position, I've actually learned from watching you all. So it's great to have this conversation and I hope that we can learn together. I, I think there are two critical pieces here. The first is that if we want our healthcare systems to be truly patient-centered, then we know that uh, marginalized patients uh, receive better care when they're treated by physicians who look like them and share common experiences. And so it's really important that if we're going to truly eliminate disparities in healthcare, that we have not only um, a variety of clinicians with return with, with respect to gender, race, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, geography, um, but also that we have research that reflects the concerns of the population at large. And so I think that one of the challenges for us is that we've been looking through this very, um, you know, quite frankly, majority white male lens um, in how we do things, how we approach our healthcare systems and how we approach patient care, how we approach research um, that's really blinded us to the richness that, you know, the diverse experiences of our entire populace have to offer. I think the other key thing here and something that's really been struck home to me as I've gone out in my role and spoken to members of our community and our neighborhoods about how we can be more deeply engaged in the healthcare system is that healthcare is the largest employer in the country. That in fact, in particularly for academic um, anchor institutions, we exert a tremendous amount of influence, not only because of how we care for patients, but also because we are often an economic engine. And, you know, when I think about MGB, which is Mass General Brigham, which was Partners Healthcare and, um, you know, the partnership between Mass General and Brigham Women's Hospital and a number of other hospitals in the area, we are the largest employer in the state. Everybody knows somebody who works for us. And so as we think about, um, you know, how we're going to improve social justice, uh, eliminate, um, you know, income inequality. Uh, it, we have a huge role in that as an employer. Um, and as physicians, I think we have a tremendous amount of, of influence to exert. 
Um, and so I think, you know, those are just two reasons why, why we need to do this, aside from the fact that it's the right thing to do. And, and also because I, I really believe that, you know, if anything, the events of the last five years have really shown us is that, you know, quite frankly, we're declining, you know, as a society, we're not doing things right. And I think we need to either get with the program or step aside. As a physician, who's not necessarily in a leadership position, thinking about um, the healthcare system or kind of smaller branches within as employers, I think that's really nuanced and important you're going to have an impact at a local level then, I presume, right? By thinking about who you're recruiting, who you're retaining, how you're employing. Can you speak to that local impact, I guess, with your experience in Boston? The challenge that is now is that there is a need, and I think it's really coming from the generation below us, right? It's our trainees who are pushing us to be genuine and authentic in this. They don't want window dressing. They don't want one minority leader at the top of, of you know, in the C-suite, you know, in HR. <laughs> they don't want, um, you know, one resident. They want to be in a truly inclusive environment. And it's not just coming from underrepresented minorities. It's also coming from majority individuals who have grown up in medical schools and in colleges that are focused on social justice and inclusion and equity. I mean, this is language that has been baked into what they have known as their experience coming up. It's just new to us because we've been in these very kind of staid antiquated systems. Now, you know, I don't want to speak for all of academic medicine. And certainly I think that, um, you know, Harvard is not known for being at the forefront of, of progressiveness, but I think that um, we're really being pushed by the generations below us to do this well and to do this right. And so what, is, what does that mean? What that means is that as a Black woman in my healthcare system, I can see that maybe I can climb the ladder, but that my hospital system still looks like, you know, apartheid South Africa where you know, the majority of the folks in environmental services and food service are color and the majority of the physicians are not. You know, or physicians are not proportionately represented. And I see an environment where, um, you know, my colleagues, wherever they may be in, um, you know, their role in healthcare, don't necessarily feel like they are included. They don't necessarily feel like they can thrive. They don't necessarily feel like they can be engaged, that they have the same opportunities, right? Ultimately, this is about opportunity and power. Um, and, and that leaves a bad taste in my mouth, right? That makes me feel like I have less of a sense of belonging than others, right? And our patients know that. Our patients feel that way. When they walk in the door and they don't see themselves, they feel that way. And so I think that, that part of the challenge here for us is to actually think long and hard about what are the factors that are contributing to this lack of inclusivity and this lack of diversity um, and how can we start to dismantle them. Um, and, and so what I've been challenged by, by our community leaders is, you know, are you doing your internal work? It's not enough that you're coming to us and saying, how can we be a better neighbor and should we set up a special hotline for, you know, folks in the community to get care first or something like that. 
We want to know that internally you're doing your work and that this is a genuine change in your organization. So could you share with us some of your experiences within your own organization regarding awareness and recognition of lags or gaps in workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then the strategies that you've used to close these gaps? We are making progress. I think we are still at the exploration and identification phase, to be honest with you. I think, um, you know, we're still trying to unearth what the issues are. Um, and those conversations are complicated. And I think one of, one of the challenges for all of us who are participating in this work, which should be all of us, is that this is truly a marathon and not a sprint. Even if I compare it to health services research, it's going to be slower. <laughs> it's not like we're going to do, you know, kind of the administrative data, and then we'll do some qualitative research, and then we'll identify the targets for intervention, and then we'll do pilot studies, and then we'll do something broader. I mean, all of that is true. But in the midst of all that comes some really difficult conversations, really difficult and really important conversations that take time, that are nuanced, um, where you have to create a culture of safety for those topics to even be broached. And so I think, you know, looking at the long game where we are is that, you know, we are dealing with awareness and recognition, our um, Human Resources Department has really focused on the Brigham experience, which includes the experience for patients and employees, stood up uh, diversity leadership, and also stood up uh, OMCOS, which is, uh, I can't remember what it stands for, but basically it's an internal ombuds program uh, to help mediate conflict. And a lot of the conflict we've identified has racial components to it has gender-based components to it, whether it's, you know, between nurses and residents in the OR, whether it's between administrative supervisors and others who, who feel like they are being uh, unduly watched or disciplined. And so recognizing a lot of the cultural context that's to that. The other thing is where they've been incredibly helpful is looking at, you know, our exit interviews and our strategies and, and actually taking data on, you know, what our turnover is. It's not just about recruitment, right? It's also about retention. And so if we gain five, but we lose five, what does that mean? And why are they leaving? And really trying to then identify what are things that, what are the, what are the underlying problems so that we can, we can close those gaps. So I think we're still in the awareness recognition phase primarily. I think some of the strategies that we've used to close the gaps is, you know, we have um, like many of their organizations paid a lot of attention to how we interview and changing our interviewing strategies, our interviewing techniques. Um, we've been much more aggressive, I should say, about increasing our inclusion criteria. So not emphasizing so much on board scores, not emphasizing so much on, on other metrics that we know have inherent bias and, and really don't necessarily indicate how effective a, a resident or a trainee may be. Recruiting from institutions where we may not have looked in the past. And so, you know, right now our, uh, in internal medicine, for example, I think our, our current resident class is 30% UIM because we, we've done a lot of that. And in surgery, we also had an increase. So I think we're all kind of learning together. And, and I think all of our organizations are going at a similar pace. You know, I will say in, in a lot of ways, you know, University of Michigan and others as public institutions are also very far ahead of us because you're public institutions. We're very much a private institution. Um, and we actually have a different relationship with our medical school than um, many hospitals do. And so I think in, in terms of this, that's actually set us back as well. 
Yeah, thanks for that. I want to just follow up again on one of the points you made earlier, um, especially in the space of um, kind of checking yourself internally when you were speaking earlier in your response. And um, you referenced the equivalent of an internal ombudsman to help mediate maybe conflict and thinking about um, some of the challenges and those difficult conversations that you were referencing. I wonder... Um, as a leader locally, um, how you specifically are helping to enable um, those difficult conversations and what you're doing to um, perhaps optimize that kind of culture or um, kind of space of psychological safety so people can have those conversations. Because um, I, I personally feel that that can be a very real challenge depending on your audience and where they're at um, in the whole scope of this marathon that you're talking us through. Let's talk about women in surgery. And I'm going to make some broad generalizations here. And I hope that there won't be rotten tomatoes thrown at me, but I'm going to make broad generalizations, just thinking about kind of how things have changed in the time that I've been in surgery. And now it's been 20 years. The first women that I saw who were senior surgeons, they weren't married, they didn't have kids, right? And surgery was their focus. And that's that was the way to be a woman in surgery. Then kind of when I was coming along, there were women there were women who had kids but you had these legendary stories about how their water broke while they were in the operating room and they still continued operating or they had a fully catheter in place while you know because they didn't want to take breaks and that was what it meant to be a woman's surgery you know now i'm so excited to be part of this dialogue that you know erica rangel who's one of my mentees is leading about you know the price of that we know that you know, women in surgery have lower fertility rates and that's not okay. And that we're not being supported by our departments to lactate and that's not okay. And that, you know, our children have lower birth weight and that's not okay, right? And so if you look at the evolution of how that's changed over time, and, and part of that was because people started being honest. Stop pretending that they weren't leaving for a soccer game in the middle of the day. Stop pretending that they weren't you know, organizing their R schedule to get to a PTA meeting or whatever it might be. And I think part of it is that we have to force ourselves to be authentic. Quite frankly, it's a lot easier to be authentic when you're an associate professor or professor and you feel like, you know, I have some standing within the leadership. And so there is a power differential there, even amongst those of us who are marginalized in one way or another. And so I think that we need to be honest and really encouraged. So I talk about how complicated it is to have, you know, a family and children and a husband who's not in medicine and an older mother all the time across the operating room table. I talk about my imposter syndrome probably too much, but I mean, it's something that plagues most of us and is particularly problematic for, you know, those of us who are women in UIM. Um, and so we really have to, I think, be genuine and authentic and I think at the same time, the leadership, our leadership, and we as leaders need to embrace that authenticity because that's the diversity that we want, right? That's what we're striving for. So it, it's, a it's a complicated thing. And I feel like in some ways, it's easy for me to say it all from, from the position that I'm in, but I haven't been in this position very long. Um, but I do feel like I owe it to the people coming up behind me to say, you know, like, this is messy and that's okay. Building on that, when you think about the messiness of having these conversations and developing strategies that address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the healthcare in healthcare systems specifically, what are the critical considerations that you've relied on 
best practices or sort of core principles when navigating that? It's interesting because this is where my palliative care training has really come handy. Um, but I think it's it's really approaching everything with curiosity, you know, and creating a culture of safety in that I I'm not judging, you know, and that's that's really important. And then I'm gonna be honest about, you know, I've been in very high-level meetings where I've been very honest about my my own personal experiences with racism and sexism within this organization. And I've used the term white supremacy in these high level meetings it's uncomfortable because it, but that's we've got to that's what we we've, we've got to kind of acknowledge that that's how how we've been operating so i think that trying to create a culture where discomfort is is okay and that you're not pointing fingers one way that i've been able to do this is also you know my mother is white my husband is white, and we've had some really challenging conversations over the past year about race. It's been, you know, really eye-opening for, for all of us, and we've all learned a lot. But by kind of starting the conversation and saying, I've had to have difficult conversations with my own family about this, right? Like, nobody gets this right, <laughs> you know? I mean, my mother marched with the Black Panthers, as like, you know, but yet she, she doesn't see it in the way that I do in 2020 kind of acknowledging that helps set the stage and acknowledging what you don't know and saying, you know, it's going to be hard. How should some of these strategies that you've been talking about this morning be tailored to teach members of all of these teams? Um, when you think about environmental services, um, food and nutrition, phlebotomy, even the transport teams, um, mid-level providers, as an example. And so I think that, um, Probably most of the audience that's kind of tuning into this um, podcast is going to be thinking about implementation of intentional and enduring change at a very local departmental level. But um, the patient experience encompasses so much more than that. And you touched on this early on, and I kind of want to circle back to it, if you don't mind. I think it's a great question, and I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer for it. I think one of the challenges is that we have to think about this hierarchy. I, mean, I just told you that I have benefited from the hierarchy because now I can say things that I couldn't say before because of this hierarchy, right? So, um, but we have to think about this hierarchy. And, and the reason why I say that is because we can teach kind of all members of the organization. So we're very focused as an organization right now on teaching kind of the, the highest ranking managers and leaders. And, and because of the hierarchy, right, the leadership sets the tone, right? At the same time, if the rest of the organization is not experiencing it, and this is, this is the piece about we have to do our own internal work, right? So we can teach, you know, for example, members of our environmental services team or our transport team how to be culturally dexterous when dealing with patients. But if they don't feel that they're in an organization that respects their own individuality and is giving them a fair wage, then it's hollow, right? It doesn't ring true, right? And so it's kind of silly for us to say to them, well, you know, you have to look them in the eye, but yet, you know, whenever they're walking down the hall, half of the interns look down and don't look them in the eye, right? And so this is where we have to do the honest work. The sounds are cheesy, but the healing really has to kind of permeate, permeate everything. The difficulty is saying, you know, you're right. Like, why don't I know everybody's name? right? 
why are there people that I've been seeing in this hospital for 15 years and I don't know their name, right? They know my name because I have a name on my coat, but I don't know their name and that's not okay. Just those small gestures of humanity and equity, I think will go a long way. And there, there are things that each of us can do individually to try and um, level the playing field and make a more inclusive environment. And that's not all of it. I mean, we've got to pay people better and give them a better future and give them more opportunity. Um, we can't hog, hog all the opportunity for ourselves. But I think that, you know, just even thinking in our own behavior about microaggressions that we don't even know that we're doing can be very illuminating. Along those lines, as um, we kind of close out with the final question, uh, what do you think is the ideal state then for healthcare systems and their workforce with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And do you have thoughts on the roadmap to get there? We talk a lot about reflecting the communities that we serve. And I struggle with that because that implies that we have to be proportionate and that implies quotas. And I don't know what you do with that. So I, you know, as far as that's concerned, I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know is that we need to be more representative of experience and of thought. And so that's not just about race. It's not just about gender. And I think that if we can do that and, and truly value that, I think that will lead to more inclusion. But there is something about representation and proportionality. I mean, healthcare is a microcosm. It touches everybody. And it's a microcosm of the, of, of the, of the um, you know, society, of culture, of society, right? We're just reflecting back. Um, and so I, I think that um, there is something about representation there that's critically important. Um, and, and representation at all levels um, and, and genuine acceptance. We can't thank you enough for sharing so authentically today with us. Um, on behalf of our collaborative, Dr. Walji and myself, please accept our gratitude, not just for all of the work and the effort that you're putting in locally at your own institution, but for kind of the guidance um, that you're sharing with others to, to follow. There's a lot that was discussed today that resonated with me, and I hope that it resonates with others that are listening. I'll end this by just encouraging everybody to, to follow your guidance, to act as individuals and also as leaders, because we all are setting the tone for ourselves and others watching on. Thank you again. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I mean, there's so much that I have learned from all of your efforts and the leadership with respect to, you know, faculty development and equity and diversity within the residency program and authenticity and authenticity of leadership. You really have set the bar in a lot of cool ways. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Michigan Surgery Sessions podcast. To learn more about the Department of Surgery at Michigan Medicine, our people and our programs, and to find more podcasts, visit our website at medicine.umich.edu slash dept slash surgery.